0: Ultimately, confidence to me is being fully prepared, knowing that you've did the work and that you've been successful before. But it's certainly not batteries included for every situation. You can live your life with a sense of confidence, but as it relates to certain applications and the confidence you are that those things will be successful, for me, there's a little bit more to peel back, which is the preparation.
1: Welcome back to Airplane Mode. This is your host, Clay Skipper. Hope everyone is staying safe out there with all the coronavirus news. And hopefully this is a brief respite from that. We do not talk about the coronavirus, though it did present some challenges in this recording. So if you guys notice the audio is a little off, please bear with us. Today's guest is Steve Stout. Steve is probably best known as a record and advertising executive. He has worked with some incredible artists, everyone from Jay-Z to Nas to Beyonce. Most recently, he launched a company called United Masters, which is a streaming platform that allows musicians to distribute their content directly to consumers. And he has recently been named a consultant to the New York Knicks, where he's working with James Dolan to help try to turn the franchise around. Two New York Knicks incidents that are referenced in here To give you guys some context, one is an incident with Spike Lee, a longtime and legendary New York Knicks fan who recently went to the stadium and was not allowed to use the entrance he had previously been allowed to use for two decades or so. So that created a little bit of a PR crisis, which we talked to Steve about, and in talking to him about it, we reference an incident with Charles Oakley, a former NBA player, former New York Knicks, who was once ejected from the stadium and let out in handcuffs. What did I want to talk to Steve about? I was curious to ask Steve because he is a very successful brand consultant, a very confident guy, and someone who's worked with very high achieving, very successful people. I wanted to ask him how he got his confidence and if there was a common thread among all those people he's worked with that allowed them to be confident and have the success they have had. And when we talked about that. He said it all came down to work ethic, it comes down to showing up, doing what you say you're going to do, working hard, because that allows you to then know that you're prepared and believe in your own intuition tells a great story about helping to produce Nas' second album going to see the legendary producer q-tip who told him that he shouldn't do something that he wanted to do with Nas' album he trusted his gut because he had done the work to trust it and he went ahead and turned out to be a good decision he talks about kobe bryant what he learned from kobe and what he learned specifically about confidence from kobe he tells a great story at the end of the episode about eating tacos with draymond green jack dorsey and Draymond Green's mom, who cooked the tacos. So stick around for that. Steve's a great storyteller on top of offering a lot of great lessons on confidence. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Steve Stout. Steve Stout, welcome to Airplane Mode. Thank you for coming on.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm glad we were able to make this work. I was really looking forward to having this discussion.
1: Usually in the intro, I describe what people do, but I think your bio is a little bit difficult to sum up, so I'm curious how you would describe what you do or what your what your job is.
0: Ultimately, my job, I I, I believe, is to create value, and uh, you know, in any circumstance that I'm in um, or anything that I take on, you know, creating value and uh, helping change people's lives as a result um, is part of the remit. So I never look at whether what, what industry I'm in whether it be advertising or music or or technology, whatever it may be, um, having a clear understanding of that I have to create value and that's my ultimate goal is something that I use as a North Star.
1: Have you always sort of had that vision as the thing driving you? Like when you were growing up, what did you think you'd want to be?
0: I mean, I went through the normal vacillation of, a vacillate between, am I going to be an athlete? Am I going to be a kind of entrepreneur? I'm going to be what kind of businesses I'm going to own. Part of it is dreams. Part of it is not knowing that you're not good. You're not a good athlete because no one tells you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But as I started to get into my formative years, I, I started to get an understanding that I had a tireless work ethic and that that was something that was special. And if I applied that to whatever I found, that gift of that energy, that motor, that determination, would be a value. When
1: did you discover that, or how, how did you first discover that you had that work ethic, or that you were good at creating value?
0: Even in the earlier years when I had a job, the other employees wouldn't take it as seriously as I did, or wouldn't think about it the way I thought about it. And it was—it just becomes evident that you know you care more, or you are willing to go further than others. And I seen that very early in some of my first jobs and working with other people and you get a chance to see, you know, your output versus theirs. I'm sure any athlete could tell you the same thing. Like people who have uh, a desire or energy to continue to stay in longer or work harder, you, you, you see it clearly.
1: One thing I want to try to unpack is how much of, cause you know, like I told you, we're talking about confidence. So how much confidence comes from putting in the work and doing the reps and how much of it comes before that. Uh, Because, you know, we had Jalen Rose on the podcast and he talked about how he attributed his game to irrational confidence and how you couldn't tell him that he wasn't Michael Jordan or Magic Johnson, even though he wasn't Michael Jordan or Magic Johnson. When he, he said, you know, when he looked in the mirror, that's what he saw. So I'm just curious from your own personal experience, like how much of the confidence that you had was sort of innate growing up. You were just self-assured and how much of it came after you had put in the reps and done the work.
0: So I would say to you, first of all, that's a great question. Um, The confidence came, it's, it's a series of, for me, successful events that leads you to a place where, you know, When you're at your best, and if you do your best, it will work. It will be successful. And if you prepare, you will have great outcomes. To me, all those things are some of the ingredients, for me, that provide me confidence. It's not something that you walk around confident because you've done it before, but you also don't take confidence for granted. Like, if you're not prepared, if you're not focused, if you haven't done the, the, the work, there's a certain sense of of confidence you lack because you know in certain spots you're not necessarily prepared for. Hmm. Ultimately, confidence to me is being fully prepared, knowing that you've did the work and that you've been successful before. But it's certainly not batteries included for every situation. You can live your life with a sense of confidence, but as it relates to certain applications and the confidence you are that those things will be successful, for me, there's a little bit more to peel back, which is the preparation.
1: Sort of going into the, before you had the reps and the experience, I'm curious what you would say as like your first big professional break.
0: My first big professional break was when I met Nas and I made, I was the executive producer of his second album, and we made the lead single, I Rule the World. I knew In the music business, I could make a difference. Why?
1: What about that crystallized that realization for you?
0: It's a good question, but it was a (laughs) hit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's just start with that, man.
1: Also, coming off a pretty unbelievable first album that's hard to follow
0: up. Well, you know what the funny, yeah, but you know what? The word sophomore jinx is a real word for a reason. And when we made the song, I would play it for guys. I specifically played it for Q-Tip who was a producer on the first album, who did not produce on the second album. Now, why he didn't produce on the second album, I really can't recall right now. I'm sure we we wanted to work with him, he's one of the greatest. But when he heard I Rule The World, he said to me, why are you doing this to him? This is a mistake. Why are you doing this to him? And I was nervous because if Q-Tip, who was a veteran, and produced on the first album said that to me, then I'm this new guy coming into the scene working with this great talent, Am I going to screw things up? And I had to figure out, this is what I'm doing. I'm going forth anyway, regardless to what he said. And it's no disrespect to him, but I had to go against what he said and move anyway. And when it became successful, that was one of those building blocks of confidence. I was like, oh, someone who's clearly more talented than me in the area of making music could actually be wrong. I didn't realize that till then.
1: It sounds like it reorients, at least, you know, from how I'm hearing it, it reorients the way you think about what you can do. Because you sort of always assume that these people hold the keys and they know what's right and wrong. And then something like that happens and it kind of upends that hierarchy in your mind and gets you to think, no, maybe I know what I'm doing.
0: Well, maybe your ears work. Maybe your intuition is better. Maybe they're wrong. You don't know. Look. You know, this is a very important thing to me. It's like, I don't want to sit around and say, do what comes right. Don't take advice from people who are clearly more experienced than you or have more wisdom than you. So I don't want to throw the baby with the bathwater out on this example. I ran into him, Q-tip, and I played it for him. We were at a mastering session, and I played it for him because I really did want his opinion. And what he said was the issue that it was slightly too commercial, this would be, this is, you know, too commercial. That part I understood why he was saying that. But I also knew that having Lauren Hill and what Nas was talking about was going to resonate with people who love the art of hip hop in its purest form. So when he says open up every cell in Attica and send them to Africa and all the things he would do if he had the power to change the world, I understand why Q-Tip would think that that was commercial, but I also understood why that was a universal truth that would resonate with people who love the pure art form of it all and wouldn't think that it was quote-unquote selling out and that it was Nas who had the ultimate credibility and that people would believe that he wouldn't say it if he didn't mean it. And I think I had an educated guess that I was... I was going to be right, but I understood what he was saying. It wasn't like when he said what he said, he reinforced something that I thought, but it was something I already contemplated. So in hindsight, it was really good to get his advice. And I do think that his advice came from a place of concern. And when you're a young entrepreneur, a young, young person doing something, and there's somebody who's more experienced and they give you advice, you should really listen to what they're saying because you may find out something that you haven't even considered. And if you hadn't even considered it, then maybe they may be right. And you should change course. So, for instance, if Q-Tip said what he said, and I was like, what is he talking about? I don't think any of this could be misconstrued as too popular and, you know, uh, too mainstream for the purists. If I never even considered that, then he may have been right. But I did consider it and knew that I was making an educated guess with other factors that I felt would cover that off. So... It's important to get the wisdom because they may say something you didn't know. In that case, he said something I already knew.
1: That makes me curious what the best advice you got as a young entrepreneur was or the best piece of wisdom you took coming up.
0: The best advice I got as a young entrepreneur was from Jimmy Iovine. He said, don't look for love in all the wrong places. And I take that statement with me to this day because a lot of times, you already have this preconceived notion of what you believe you love or what will love you. And you start going in places that you shouldn't be looking for that love or expecting that love. And being conscious of actually looking for love in the wrong places was something I never even considered. The emotion of love or the passion for something, I never associated with wrong places. And you realize... Over life as an entrepreneur and, or even in relationships, you try to force it because you want it to happen. And you end up looking for love in places where the love isn't there. And that love could be a return on your investment, a return on your time, or just the uh, sort of reciprocity of a loving relationship.
1: How do you identify if it's the wrong place? Is it a feeling? Is, like what, How does that go down?
0: Uh, man, you know, obviously love is an emotion, bro. So it's like one of those things where you, you just, it's a feeling. I, I, you, it's like, you know, you're going down this thing. It, you're nervous about it. Cause you're not sure if the love is going to come back and you, um, you shouldn't be questioning it when you start questioning it. It's probably not the right thing, but that's just a feeling. But when you really deep down inside are questioning, I'm not talking about the anxiety of failure I'm not talking about the anxiousness of wanting it to work really bad. I'm talking about when you get the feeling that it's not right, but you keep going anyway.
1: It sounds to me like you're a guy who's always been pretty in touch with his intuition. Who, Jimmy? No, you, <laughs> Steve. Stout.
0: Oh, 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 yeah, oh, yeah. I'm I'm in touch with my intuition. I I focus on it. I, I definitely focus on it. I mean, when you have clear mind and clear thought, you could certainly know that your intuition is your best protector.
1: I want to talk to you about projecting confidence because I want to talk to you about your new job as a consultant for the Knicks. Is that the correct title?
0: Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, special consultant to Jim's Dolan.
1: You've been in that for a month about?
0: It's very uh, spirited month, yeah.
1: So I'm a, I'm a lifelong Knicks fan, and I don't think it's unfair to say that the Knicks have been struggling in recent years and obviously part of what your job is is I would imagine as part of the just overall organization is to inject some confidence into the organization in a way right and convince players that this is a franchise that is a winning franchise or can be a winning franchise again as a storied franchise. I'm curious how you think about that? Like, how do you even go about beginning to package, you know, it's the same with a business, I would imagine. But when you take over a business that has been struggling, what are the steps to then get it to a place where you can project that confidently, we're going to turn this around and make this a success? How do you sell that to people, or in this case, to players?
0: Well, look, I mean, player operations and the players are not necessarily... The, the current players on the team is not, my, is not my area of focus. My area of focus is that whether it be fans, free agents, just the perception of fans and the basketball community at large have a different, much more favorable relationship with the Knicks and our efforts and what we're trying to get done. And with that, there is the application of trying to get people to be confident that we have a clear narrative and a mission and that we will get there. And they have confidence in us that we will get it done. Our job and our mission is to deploy a certain level of confidence so that we get the best and the brightest stars to come there, that our fan experience is better than anyone else, and that we serve this iconic franchise in a best of class manner. And I'm looking forward to doing it with those guys. But yes, it's a lot of work to do. It's definitely an uphill battle. And, you know, winning cures all. But, you know, outside of winning, we still have to let everybody know that our intentions are to win and to ultimately dominate. That's the goal.
1: May I ask you about the recent incident with Spike? I mean, you could
0: ask me about it. I wasn't wasn't there, so.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I understand. It'd be hard for
0: me to give you any commentary that isn't something that you've read already. That seems
1: like anathema to the type of confidence you want to project from the new franchise, I would imagine.
0: I think the whole thing was overblown, to be completely honest with you. Um, I have no idea, you know, if there was no one who who touched Spike Lee or attempted to throw him out, why he'd start yelling out Charles Oakley. It's a name like that. It just seems that he he was very aggressive in, you know, dropping that name for reasons that are not clear to me that he was not in the same incident that Charles Oakley was in. So why would he say that in vain? At the same time, you know, if he was using that entrance for many, many years and he's a creature of habit, maybe there could have been more detailed discussions about, you know, whether there could have been an exemption for him or not. I, I, like, I, I don't know why it got to that point, but it certainly didn't feel to me like anything that was like the Charles Oakley incident. Like, I, I've, that's the part I didn't understand. Like, I've I've gone to many places many times, and there was certain protocol that changed, and it wasn't convenient. I didn't like it. Um, and I was like, I've been coming through this entrance for years, or so I've been allowed to come up without signing my name for years or showing ID for years. So why do I have to do it now? And... You know, you just become used to that. But it's when somebody decides they want to enforce the rule and it applies to you as well. The first thing you don't go is like, this is racism or this is that. I mean, you don't like, why? <laughs> it's like, why, why is it Charles Oakley? I mean, I just think that 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 made the thing really, really extreme. And that's probably my only comment on it, that it was overblown, that I could see how he felt like I've been doing this. Why? Why am I being treated different this time? Why, would, if if they if they let me do this all the time, why is it stopping now? That's a very normal question, especially for a VIP and somebody who's been that supportive and has gotten treated that way by the organization. And I'm sure in most rooms he goes into, he goes into side and back doors. I mean, he's Spike Lee. He's a he's a legend. I understand that. I've got I've gotten treated that same way in many places as well, with a certain differentiation because of my accomplishments or, uh, for the safety of just crowd control, bringing you through a separate entrance. So when it's removed, there's an inconvenience, but again, I don't think it goes to the point of, of creating or saying something and using somebody who really went through something that was clearly much more, uh, intense, much more physical. And then like screaming that out immediately, that's when the thing gets overblown.
1: Yeah. Have you spoken to Spike?
0: I haven't spoken to him about it, and I'm sure he felt like he was justified. That's what I'm saying. I wasn't there, so it's hard for me to determine any nuance. There's always family feuds, but no one wins when the family feuds. You know what? Spike Lee, <clears throat> he, he said clearly when they asked him on first take, would he go to Brooklyn? Why didn't he go to Brooklyn? And he said, why would I ever do that? And I'm sure that's how New York Knicks fans feel. I mean, they're loyal fans, and Spike is, you know, the loyalist. And he's disappointed. And I've been disappointed with family before. We make up and we move on because there's nothing but love. And I think that's what this is.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a fair response. And, you know, I think, yeah, I, don't, I obviously cannot speak to why Spike paired it with the Charles Oakley incident. I think as an outsider, just as a Knicks fan, I think it can be disheartening when you have like a string of those incidents. But I think going back to what you said earlier winning can sort of cure a lot of ills. So I hope you can get us some wins.
0: <laughs> well, I'm am going to try my best. I mean, that's you know, I'm I'm a part of a team, so hopefully as an organization, as a team of great leaders and experienced leaders that we pull it together and and go on a run. You know, the other yeah, thing that I yeah. thought was important, you know, when you speak about confidence is I want to talk about united masters and this whole idea of the independent artists today getting a chance to be able to compete at the highest levels in the music business without going to a record company
1: well why don't you explain real quick what United Masters is just so the listeners know
0: yeah United Masters is a music distribution platform a digital music distribution platform that allows an artist to go uh, if you have a song if you have any piece of a composition um, we can get it you know from your phone to Apple, Spotify, TikTok, YouTube, any music store, Tidal or Amazon in a day. And it takes 37 seconds actually to upload that content to our Hmm. systems. And you get to keep the, you own the rights. We take 10%, you get your 90% and you own the rights in perpetuity. There's a lot of young artists who now see us as a viable option rather than going to a record company and giving away those rights for money early in their career, and usually yeah. you find out, yeah. you speak to artists later in their career, and they say signing that record deal was the worst thing they've ever done. And we want to be able to eradicate that by building United Masses as simply a mobile-first record company in your pocket. The industry now has the confidence to know that they don't need a record company to be successful. That was something yeah, yeah. that artists were not confident about. Independence always looked like Seven guys in a van sleeping on couches, it never looked like the financial success of owning something. you know I've been blessed to, to to be able to live my dream for the last 20 years of you know building companies and having these these insightful visions and then being able to pursue them and building great teams to help me do that, and I'm excited to continue doing that.
1: I wanted to ask you about that. Because it seems to me like you've woven together a pretty incredible network, both on the macro scale in terms of businesses you have, but also just the micro scale of people you know. I'm curious how much of that was intentional or how you think about cultivating a network. Like how much of that was just actively seeking out people you want to work with and how much of it was sort of being in the right place be, at the right time and, and being opportunistic?
0: I don't know. It's, it's, been, it's been so many years. It's doing what you say is the first thing you got to do over a long period of time is the second thing you got to do it for. You know, like I didn't know that I was going to build this network. I didn't know each person I've met were part of an initiative and those relationships held together because of mutual success, shared values, you know, wanting to repeat the success of something we've had before or respect. But when you keep your word for a long period of time, everyone's going to have a network like that. I mean, that's just how it works.
1: I was going to ask you what the more high-achieving and successful people you've worked with, what is a common trait among them? But it sounds like
0: oh, it's, work ethic. Oh, it's easy. It's work easy. ethic and keeping your word. E- it's okay. easy. It's work ethic. I can tell you that Beyonce and LeBron James and Jimmy Iovine, you know, I've watched those guys you know the late Kobe Bryant, their work ethic is outrageous. It's the work ethic and making you not see it. It's like they work really, really hard, but then when they show up, you don't feel like you could tell how hard they work in their performance, but they don't bore you or bear on you like they're working hard like they do like like they're never breathing heavy. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. It's like they make it look good, but they work. <laughs> There's some people that work really hard and they look or feel disheveled because of all the hard work they just put in. They never look like that. They look clean.
1: Do you have a story or an example you can think of that illustrates how, you know, one of these people you have worked with goes above and beyond in terms of work ethic?
0: You know, I spoke about it on the Kobe Bryant interview, what he did on The Breakfast Club, like preparing the guards, some of the great players, you know, watching hours and hours of film and LeBron... From day one, as a player in this league, investing in, you know, outside of the team, a team of people, outside of his basketball team, a team of trainers and a ritual of icing his body and massage and therapy that would just preserve him in the long term. And he was doing this early. So when you see him 17 years later playing at this level, you realize this was something, it was written. He's doing this since he was 18, 19 years old preparing his body for later in his career. That was the hours put in. Or you just see Beyonce, you know, being the world's best performer, I don't know, for 20 years going, the best, the world's best performer. Everybody knows that. You ask anybody that question, everybody knows who the best performer in the world is. It's Beyonce. She's been doing this since she was a kid. She's been practicing on every angle. I, I, I tell you Beyonce's story. We, she performed at Glastonbury, which is this festival in the UK. And, you know, artists, they, they were always sort of adverse to uh, hip-hop, headlining it, and certainly R&B because it, was a, it started as a rock alternative-leaning festival that was huge. Probably the biggest festival in the world. And Beyonce got the privilege to headline it. or they got the privilege to watch her headline it. And she crushed it. But literally when we left and we all were celebrating her unbelievable performance, she was on her laptop editing the pictures and the video that was going to be published from that performance. And, and, and I couldn't believe that at one in the morning after the, the excruciating preparation and to make that performance great and, and just the hours of being on stage and actually doing it, that immediately you get off the stage and you're into work mode editing. I, I looked at her like, oh, you're just different. Excuse me. I got to step up. I have no idea what level this is. This is this is not level 10. This is another <laughs> chapter of excellence that I need to understand.
1: You brought up Kobe, and I know you've spoken about him a bunch and really beautifully. I thought you know, what you shared on the shop not too long ago was... Was a really interesting insight into Kobe. I'm curious, you know, for the specific theme of this season, what you learned maybe about confidence from Kobe? Because I know he's a relentless worker, but he also seemed to have a, a sort of tireless confidence. Never
0: had, a, never had a, never ever had a confidence problem. In fact, he was confident that despite whether it be missing a shot or any opposing arena, or remember in early on, people was hating on him and siding with Shaq, um, at least that's the way public opinion was moving at a certain time, his confidence and his belief in himself was bigger than any naysayer, including the cumulative naysayers, could ever topple. And that was something that I learned from him. He never... He didn't act like he didn't listen to them. He didn't listen to, He listened to them, he heard it, but he never paid attention to it because his sense of belief in self was bigger than anything that anybody could say about him. Then it all converted back to him, right? Like everybody who was a naysayer became a fan because you'd be surprised at the six degrees of separation between love and hate. Those aren't emotions that are really far apart. Those emotions are very much next to each other. Good and great are farther apart. Love and hate are very, very close. And it's difficult, but you don't have to move somebody that much. If they if they can find the emotion in it to hate you, they can find the same passion, the passion of hate, uh, is very close to the passion of love. And if they have a passionate feeling towards you, to shift that feeling is difficult. But you can, if you shift it, you will shift it in a very passionate way.
1: Yeah, that's. it reminds me of something Draymond Green's mom actually told me once, which I love, which she said that... Draymond, uh, you met Draymond, oh, oh her, stop, stop, stop,
0: stop, 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 stop. You met Draymond Green's mom?
1: <laughs> I've, I've interviewed her a couple of times.
0: Listen to me. Draymond's Green's mom, this is very important for everybody to know, easily makes the best tacos in the world. And I'm not joking around. (laughs) Listen to me. Really? Draymond's Green's mom made tacos for me, Draymond, and Jack Dorsey, the founder of Twitter, um, about three weeks ago. And my head was blown off. I I didn't understand the level of crunchiness. And mixed with the seasoning, the whole, the shell, the seasoning. The combination, each bite was better than the last.
1: Well, what were you, Draymond Green, Draymond Green's mom, and Jack Dorsey doing together?
0: Jack is a very dear friend of mine. Ah. Draymond is a very close friend of mine. I was in the Bay Area. I like, you just told me, asked me about my network. I bring people together. That's another part of what I do. I bring people together, culture, technology, storytellers. That That's pretty much the people that dominate my network. And when I said we were going to come, I was going to come hang out with Draymond. He said, my mom's making tacos. And honestly, I was like, man, I ain't, let me get something to eat before I go over there and get the tacos. Because tacos, doesn't, like, A, they're from Michigan. Like, why would they know how to make tacos at a high level? And B, he, that doesn't seem like a meal. Maybe I should eat something prior. But <laughs> I didn't eat anything prior. And um, I said, let me, let me just go over there and. You know, I'll go in at an empty stomach and I'll enjoy this taco experience.
1: Last question I would ask is, is the question we ask everyone in the podcast, which is for a favorite fuck-up.
0: It's one of the things that I wish I did that I didn't do. I never signed. Alicia Keys was an artist who came to my office first and before she had a deal. And I didn't sign her. And um, I kicked myself for that. I mean, I, I, look, I could rationalize the fact that she didn't have the piano. Uh, She just sang. In fact, I didn't even know she played the piano. But I just think about how I've had a really good career, but how much would I be proud if that phenom of that genius artist, Alicia Keys, would have been somebody that I would have been associated with her success because I'm a fan and she's a genius and I fucked up.
1: Is there a lesson in that or is that just pure regret?
0: I don't, you know, I mean, I could ask more questions. I don't, That wasn't the prerequisite for my famous fuck up. Like I have a fuck up that taught me a lesson, but that was a fuck up that I regret because I wish I was something that I was a part of.
1: Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for coming on Airplane Mode. I appreciate it.
0: Okay, bye-bye.
1: Thanks to Steve for coming on. Thanks to Jessamyn Molly, our producer. Thank you to you all for listening to this episode and to this season. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, Hopefully you've learned a thing or two about confidence, maybe more than two things. That would be great. Uh, I know I have. We're going to go on a short hiatus. I'm not sure for how long, but I'm confident that we will be back. In the meantime, if you guys enjoy the show, I think there's a high chance you will like a newsletter that we put out every week from GQ, The Level Up Newsletter, I will throw the link to sign up for that in the show notes. If you guys are interested in conversation on confidence and the type of things we talk about here, I think that might be up your alley. So check that out. In the meantime, happy to hear from any of you. Reach out clay underscore skipper at gq.com. We'll talk to you and come back for season three. Until then, be well and thanks for listening.